From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The forest fires that continue to ravage the Amazon may push the largest rainforest in the world past a tipping point. We might not have a lot of time, perhaps not, no more than 20 to 30 years, to not only reduce deforestation to zero, but also to start restoring large portions of the Amazon forest. Also, 10 Democratic presidential hopefuls take to the town hall stage of CNN to talk about the climate crisis. People say, well, Bernie, you know, you're spending a lot of money. Is it realistic? And my response is, is it realistic to create a situation where the planet that our children and grandchildren will be living in will be increasingly uninhabitable and unhealthy? Is that realistic? That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the Earth continues to warm, there are more and more signs of how our climate is becoming unbalanced. More deadly and erratic hurricanes are one sign, crushing heat waves another, and wildfires are incinerating nature and communities around the world, from Alaska to Central Africa, Southeast Asia, and especially this year, the Amazon. Tropical zone farmers around the world often burn parts of the rainforest to clear the land and boost soil fertility. But it's a temporary fix, as the soil is quickly exhausted, so to keep farming, they have to keep burning deeper and deeper into the forest. Often called the lungs of the earth, what happens in the Amazon does not stay in the Amazon, and Brazil had reduced deforestation rates over the last decade. But the new national government relaxed enforcement of conservation laws, and there were three times as many wildfires this July as compared to the same time last year. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom spoke with Carlos Nobre, senior researcher at the University of Sao Paulo. It's very rare natural fires in the Amazon. So we know when there are fires, it's mostly for expanding the agricultural frontier into the, the forest. And the new president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, has been nicknamed um, Captain Chainsaw for his attitude towards the Amazon. Can you tell me, please, more about his policies and rhetoric and and how that's contributing, in your opinion, to this um, surge in fires there? He called himself Captain Chainsaw just to illustrate his views on the way we should proceed with development in the Amazon. He does not believe the indigenous territory should be kept the way they are. They, he believes they should be transformed in, into big cattle ranches as well, or open them up to mining. His views represent just a minority of people which really do not have much power, and except they are very close aligned with the a conservative agribusiness. A conservative agribusiness sector wants perpetually expand the land for cattle ranches for agriculture. However, this is not necessary. And uh, the Amazon and other parts of Brazil can produce a lot of food without further deforestation. It's simply a matter of increasing efficiency in Brazilian agriculture. And recent polls show that 90% of Brazilians are against Amazon deforestation. His views are the views of a very few people, and uh, they are not really the views of Brazilians. Brazilians really care about the Amazon, not today, 
but forever. Well, let's talk a bit about why the Amazon is so very important, even outside of Brazil, starting with its role as a carbon sink. What role does the Amazon play in the world's carbon budget, and how has that changed as a result of these fires? So the Amazon, as a natural sink, the forest removes something up to 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere every year. This is about 5% of total emissions by human activities, 70% combustion of fossil fuels, and 24% deforestation and agriculture. So the Amazon alone removes 5% of that 40 billion tons. This is crucially important because otherwise the planet would be warming up much, much faster than we are observing. If we lose most of this carbon store in the vegetation, we are not going to meet the targets of the Paris Accord of 2 degrees Celsius maximum warming or, or preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a bit about water. The billions of trees in the Amazon produce an awful lot of water in the course of their lives. Can you tell me a bit about the role of the forest in the hydrology of the region and, and worldwide? Tropical forests, they have this very special characteristics, which is they produce photosynthesis all year round because all this rain goes deep into the soil. They have very deep roots, 10 meters up to 12 meters. So you don't see any uh, seasonal variability in photosynthesis in the production of organic material. And of course, the temperatures are very adequate for almost maximum optimal level of photosynthesis. Therefore, they keep Transpiring water, uh, evaporating and transpiring, we call evapotranspiration, all year round. So that water is very important to induce the formation of clouds, cloud droplets, and rain. So tropical forests are the most efficient biome to recycle water. Many studies indicate that without the forest, the overall rainfall in the Amazon would be something like 25% less. Mm. And if the rainfall is less, most of the forest will become a dry savanna. And of course, the irony here is that uh, this forest is being cut down for agriculture and the very crops and cows that require water will be harder to grow in the long term as rainfall patterns shift and the forest is degraded even further. Absolutely, this is very true. Uh, You know, without the Amazon, uh, we have many impacts on, on the possibilities of agriculture. One is, yes, reduction of rainfall in, in distant remote areas, but also there is a direct effect on temperature. A tropical forests cool the atmosphere because most of the solar energy reaching the forest is used to evapotranspire water. And uh, if you reduce the forest, more of the solar energy is used to heat up the air. So the air is warmer by two to three degrees centigrade. So that air is not only hotter over the forests or the, what used to be a forest, but also when they travel southward and they reach central Brazil, uh, an area of, of uh, agriculture, uh, they will also reach that area to 2 degrees, 1.52 degrees warmer, and that's 
very damaging to agriculture because remember, this is tropics. This is already very, very hot places. Agriculture is, let's say, almost at the limit uh, in these areas in terms of temperature. So that will reduce productivity of agriculture and, and also cattle uh, in, in central Brazil. Now, we hear a lot about the notion of the Amazon reaching a tipping point. That is where the whole system turns from rainforest to savanna. How would that happen and how far are we from such a tipping point? This is one area that I've been working with colleagues and my PhD students for many, many decades. And recently, we look at all human drivers, deforestation, climate change due to global warming, and also vulnerability of forests to increased number of forest fires. We put all those three drivers together, and then we concluded that because all these three drivers are acting upon the forest simultaneously today, we should not exceed the deforestation figure 20-25% of the forest. If we exceeded this range, 60% of the forest will slowly, over three to five decades, turn into dry savannas. This is the tipping point. And we are currently something like 15-17% deforestation in the whole basin. So we are not that far. Under the current rates of deforestation, this is something between 20 and 30 years into the future, very, very close to the present. If we do reach that tipping point and the Amazon turns to savanna, what does that mean for the world? What does that mean for um, you know, our own survival, hydrology, the carbon budget, and, and so many other things that we maybe can't even anticipate? Well, first we have to be very concerned with the survival of tens of thousands of species endemic to the Amazon which will go extinct. So mm -hmm. loss of biodiversity will be very significant. By the Amazon forest is the most species diverse place on earth. Then probably we are going to lose over the course of a few decades, perhaps three decades, a very large amount of carbon. The dry savannas store much, much less carbon, maximum one third as much carbon as a tropical forests. So all that carbon ends up in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, making uh, the, the possibility of reaching the, the Paris Accord targets for 1.5 or 2 degrees much harder, much, much harder. In fact, almost it makes impossible to reach the 1.5 target. So, and also, of course, it changes the climate in the whole basin, less rain, much hotter, and also it will interfere remotely in, in climate, in rainfall, in many distant areas, perhaps even southwest U.S., but certainly eastern South America. Well, this is all very depressing. <laughs> what uh, can a listener do? Somebody that's listening to us talking right now and feeling rather helpless about it, uh, what can we do? We have really to, to force the, the sectors exploring economically the Amazon so it's very possible to have production of many, many products in the Amazon with a zero deforestation policy. So this is a possibility within our hands, but responsible consumption is a key element. And of course, when you go one step higher and you think about, let's say, investment funds, investment funds, they own partly these big soy companies, meat companies. If these investment funds 
really have a policy of zero deforestation in their portfolios that would rapidly, rapidly drive deforestation to nearly zero. I think, you know, consumers, they have the solution in their hands. It's more effective coming from that front rather than, let's say, expecting the producers agribusiness to be responsible or, or go along those lines on their own. They have to be forced to do it by the market. And also we are going through a process in, in Brazil and many Amazonian countries that one should be careful expecting governments to take uh, all these actions. They are probably not going to take those actions on, on the short run. Carlos Nobre is a senior researcher at the University of Sao Paulo. Carlos, thank you so much for taking this time with me. Thank you very much for the opportunity. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On September 4th, CNN hosted 10 of the highest polling Democratic candidates for president in back-to-back town halls about the climate crisis. The historic nearly seven hours of discussion gave candidates a chance to lay out in some detail their plans for curbing greenhouse gas emissions and helping communities adapt to unavoidable impacts. No candidate doubted the urgency of the climate crisis, and many noted the United Nations says we have just 11 years left to cut greenhouse gas emissions in half to keep global average temperatures from rising more than one and a half degrees Celsius. The questions were how and for how much? Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders called for $16 trillion to be spent over the next 15 years, roughly a trillion dollars a year, or 5% of GDP. People say, well, Bernie, you know, you're spending a lot of money. Is it realistic? And my response to them is, is it realistic to not listen to the scientists and to create a situation where the planet that our children and grandchildren and future generations will be living in will be increasingly uninhabitable and unhealthy. Is that realistic? So I think we have a moral responsibility to act and act boldly. And to do that, yes, it is going to be expensive. CNN moderator Anderson Cooper asked Senator Sanders how he could accomplish his goals of Medicare for all, tuition-free college, and his climate plan all at the same time. Well, I have the radical idea that a sane Congress can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. <laughs> and you know, Anderson, there are so many crises that are out there today. It's not prioritizing this over that. It is finally having a government which represents working families and the middle class rather than wealthy campaign contributors. And when you do that, <laughs> and when you do that, then things fall in place. Questions from CNN journalists and members of the audience put candidates on the record on a range of topics from fracking to carbon pricing to nuclear energy. Senator Sanders called nuclear power too expensive and problematic with waste. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren said she'd start to phase it out. 
But entrepreneur Andrew Yang pointed to the promise of safer thorium fuel reactors, and New Jersey Senator Cory Booker said nuclear must be part of the transition to a carbon-free economy. My plan says that we need to be or, or, at, at a zero-carbon electri- electricity by 2030. That's, that's 10 years from the time that I will win the presidency of the United States of America. <laughs> you, you, and right now, nuclear is more than 50% of our non-carbon-causing uh, uh, energy. So people who think that we can get there without nuclear being part of the blend just aren't looking at the facts. All the Democrats on stage pledged to bring back environmental protections that President Trump has gutted. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. Right now, we have a leader that doesn't even think um, at all in the long term. And there's an old Ojibwe saying uh, that uh, it's important to me. We have a lot of tribes in our state, and it says great leaders should make decisions uh, not for this generation, but for seven generations from now. Uh, we have we we have a president that can't make decisions seven minutes from now. Okay. Former Vice President Joe Biden lamented the vacuum left by President Trump's decision to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement. The deal is now. What's happened is that as we have pulled out, there is no leadership. There is no leadership. I know almost every one of these world leaders. If I were, if I'd been president today, I would have at the G7 made sure this became the topic. There would be no empty chair. I would be pulling the G7 together. I would be down with the president of Brazil saying enough is enough. This is what we're going to do. And this is what's going to happen if you don't do it. This is to bring the world together. Mr. Biden was asked about how realistic he thinks the Green New Deal is. I think the Green New Deal deserves an enormous amount of credit for bringing this to a head in a way that it hasn't been before. It hasn't been. But it doesn't have a lot of specifics about exactly what we'll do with regard to greenhouse gases. It doesn't have specifics about what programs are going to initiate to be able to deal with taking, getting a net zero emission. What programs are you going to move on? What are the things we should be doing? Where, is this, where should the focus be? Several of the candidates stress the importance of structural changes, such as getting corporate money out of politics and putting a price on carbon rather than individual actions. CNN moderator Chris Cuomo asked Senator Warren about President Trump's decision to roll back rules calling for energy-saving light bulbs. Do you think that the government should be in the business of telling you what kind of light bulb you can have? Oh, come on. Give me a break. You know... Is that a yes? No, look. There are a lot of ways that we try to change our energy consumption and our pollution. And God bless all of those ways. Some of it is with light bulbs. Some of it is on straws. Some of it, dang, is on cheeseburgers, right? There are a lot of different pieces to this. And I get that people are trying to find the part that they can work on and what can they do. And I'm in favor of that. And I'm going to help and I'm going to support But understand, this is exactly what the fossil fuel industry hopes we're all talking about. That's what they want us to talk about. And like some of the others present, Senator Warren spoke at length about the importance of environmental justice. So I see it this way. Part one is that everything we spend on climate has to be about reducing our carbon footprint. It has to be about justice as well, though for people who've been displaced, for workers who've been displaced, for people in communities of color. It's about trying 
to help those who've been injured from all that's happened. We'll have more about the U.S. presidential candidates in next week's program. Joining us now is economist Joe Aldi. He's a professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, you were in President Obama's White House. So among all these candidates, do you have a dog in this fight? I look forward to a Democratic president making some real progress on climate change. So I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm not working with a campaign, but I'm thrilled to see a lot of the policy ideas they're bringing forward. So this is the first time that a major news network has gathered the 10 top Democratic presidential hopefuls on a stage to have them talk about climate change at length. Why do you think it took so long for us to get here? Well, it's fascinating. You can go back and look at, say, the 2012 or the 2016 presidential debates, and climate change is barely mentioned at all. And I think it's really impressive to see the change in where we are in terms of the public debate about this issue. I think a lot of credit can be given to the students out there who have really started to bring energy from a new voice to the debate. And I think that has helped really drive both the candidates to be much more ambitious and for the media to start to really pay attention to the climate change issue. I saw the students asking tougher questions than many of my uh, journalistic colleagues would have asked given the opportunity. I was impressed at how well the students did, and I thought a few of the anchors maybe should go back to school. (laughs) Now, carbon pricing uh, figured fairly heavily in this series of town halls, whether it's cap and trade or a carbon tax. Break those concepts down for us briefly. Regardless of whether it's a carbon tax or cap and trade, the general intent is to put a price on the pollution that comes from burning fossil fuels that then makes it that much more expensive to burn coal or burn gasoline or to use natural gas. That creates the incentive then to, one, become more efficient in how we use energy. It also creates a much stronger incentive then to invest in solar energy and wind power. And so the idea here is to say we don't necessarily know in government the best, most cost-effective way to reduce emissions, but if we put a price on the pollution, we're going to create incentives for companies and for families to find the lowest cost way of reducing their emissions. Now, the difference between a tax and cap and trade, though, is that a tax is explicitly setting the price. Cap and trade sets an aggregate quantity, an emissions goal, and then gives firms the right to emit that they can buy and sell with each other. So if cap and trade and carbon taxes both reduce carbon, which one is the better approach? Which one's the better approach? Uh, The one that can get signed into law. There's two key characteristics that will impact the effects of those policies on the typical American. One is going to be, do we use these revenues to benefit them or not? The second thing is a question of, do you want to have certainty on the emissions outcome, in which case you might like cap and trade? Or do you prefer certainty about the price and the cost of the policy, in which case you might like a carbon tax? But as someone who worked on cap and trade in a failed effort in 2009 and 2010 in government, there's also a part of me that's willing to try a carbon tax to see if there's a way you can navigate the politics to get it through Congress. At the end of the day, I think it's really important for us to price carbon as a key tool in any kind of climate change program. Uh, so, so I think they're both a tremendous step forward from our existing authorities under current law. 
Now, there were several questions, Joe, that focused on what personal sacrifices the American public would have to make to deal with climate disruption, whether it would be giving up cheeseburgers, uh, incandescent light bulbs. Others focused on the fossil fuel companies, pointing the finger to them as the biggest contributors to this crisis and their role in disinformation. Your take? I think that if we're talking about plastic straws, we're not focusing on what's really important here. Uh, we need to change the energy foundation of our economy. So virtually every activity a business undertakes, a family undertakes in a given day, has some impact on the climate. That's why we need to have really strong, ambitious climate change policy. There are big problems like this that we can't just solve on our own. Focusing on personal sacrifice, I think, is missing the point that we need effective public policy to drive changes in behavior in the near term and incentives for innovation in the long term. To what extent do you think the talk about personal sacrifice is pushback from folks who don't want to see us move ahead on dealing with climate disruption? Well, it, w it wouldn't surprise me. We, we've seen different ways of framing a problem to try to slow down progress. It's, it's one of my colleagues refers to this as the solution aversion problem. Some of the people who, when you poll them publicly, why they aren't sure about climate change, they may be denying climate change. It's not that they are really denying the science of climate change. They may be averse to the potential solutions. And they think the potential solutions may be really uncomfortable for them or really expensive for them. And so that may be the reason why they don't necessarily support taking action on the issue. Let's talk about the big worry that many have about changing our energy economy to deal with climate change, and that's, of course, jobs. And when you shut down coal mines or you close down oil fields and such, people lose jobs, not just the people, but the communities. So how do the folks on the town hall stage deal with the question of having what some would call a just transition? So for some of these industries, they're already undergoing a transition. Coal is undergoing a transition. We have seen employment in the coal industry fall quite dramatically over the past decade. And while there are some who would blame environmental regulations for that, I think that's, for the most part, a testament to market forces. It's been the success of innovation in fracking that has driven down dramatically the cost of producing natural gas, that has helped natural gas dramatically increase its market share in the power sector and displace coal. So right now, we're just relying on the markets which, to be honest, markets don't care if a job is lost at a coal mine because a job is created at an oil and gas field. Markets can be ruthlessly efficient in that way. And right now, without any policy framework, those coal communities in Appalachia are hurting without a policy response. We saw a number of the candidates describe how they could envision a way of providing resources to help in the short term, the potential for trying to provide training, the potential to diversify those economies. I mean, a coal miner who loses his or her job, it's not just that they want to have money to help support the family. They do. But there's also the self-esteem and the confidence of doing something productive with your day that comes with being employed. And I'll be honest, dealing with this when we think about the number of jobs at stake with coal is going to be easier than when we think about more broadly with fossil fuels. The employment in oil and gas is dramatically higher both directly for oil and gas drilling and for those who service oil and gas operations. The question, of course, is do we find there to be opportunities in the production of turbines for wind farms or solar panels or the next generation of energy efficient technologies where we are creating good paying manufacturing jobs 
that the next group of workers coming into the workforce, instead of going into a fossil fuel industry job, they're excited to go into a clean energy industry job. And I think that's that's one of the key challenges that we have. You know, I think there's a lot from the plans that we heard in the town hall where the candidates are looking at that opportunity for creating jobs and a new growing industry that can help offset some of those losses in the others. Joe, we're just about out of time, but from your perspective, who helped themselves in this process, do you think? My first answer will be Jay Inslee. Now, it's fascinating. <laughs> he wasn't on stage speaking, but I think Governor Inslee brought a lot of ideas and enthusiasm about climate change. It didn't resonate enough for him to stay in the campaign. But having said that, you heard a number of the candidates talk about the very thoughtful plan that he has brought to the table, the fact that he organized his campaign around climate change. To me, it says something that you can be a governor of a state, and as a governor, you have to care about a lot of issues. But when he just said, I'm going to run for president, this is the number one issue. This is the fundamental issue facing America in the 21st century. So I think the fact that he has these ideas, I think the term was used that they're sort of open source. I thought that was fantastic. And I think it reflects that uh, among Democrats, this is an issue that they take very seriously. You know, there were some who I thought did a great job. I thought Senator Warren did great. Senator Warren, I think, is great when she is passionately talking about how public policy can better the lives of Americans. And I thought, you know, there were some who were frustrated we didn't have a debate. I think it was good we didn't have a debate. Climate change isn't simple. And so, you know, my friends in communications can say, you got to figure out a better way to talk about climate change. But sometimes you need to talk about difficult, complicated issues in depth. And I thought the format in the town hall provided that opportunity. Joe Alvey is an economist who teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Steve. It's time now to take a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta. Hi there, Peter. What's going on? What do you have for us today? Hi, Steve. We're going to take a look at Australia and the Great Barrier Reef, that natural icon that's also a hugely important economic factor for tourism in Australia. The Australian government already concerned about what they call the poor status of the Great Barrier Reef have downgraded it to very poor. There are pollution and other factors that are degrading this thousand mile long reef, but the main one is simply climate change. So if it's been downgraded to very poor, what comes after that? Because I mean, the ocean's getting warmer. Yeah, I don't know. What comes after that is uh, maybe the death of the reef, extinction of the reef. Around the world, coral reefs have taken a nosedive just in the past few years. Coral bleaching, pollution from sediment, uh, hits by ship traffic, even sunscreen, the chemicals in sunscreen have been found to be very harmful. But the main culprit is warmer water because reefs have a very limited range of temperatures in which they can thrive and survive. I believe at one point the Australian government wanted to cut a ship channel right through the Great Barrier Reef. They did, and um, the irony for all that is that they wanted to make a shortcut through the reef in order to ship coal to places like India and China, thereby destroying a part of the reef even quicker in order to get coal out that would help warm the oceans, that would kill the reef potentially off forever. That's incredible, isn't it? Hey, what else do you have for us today? 
Hey, the USA is number one. In the past year, uh, this country has taken the lead in oil production. The U.S. is now the number one oil producer, thanks mostly to fracking. And the U.S. being number one changes two things. It changes, probably not for the better, how uh, this country deals with foreign policy. And it also changes, of course, the climate. The Saudis are still pretty big producers, as is Russia. So it would seem that uh, those are competitors for the U.S., and yet I suppose maybe they're also companeros, that they would like to see the continued use of uh, fossil fuels. Competitors in business, but companeros in delaying climate action. The Russians played a big role in that. The Saudis certainly have. And now with the current administration in Washington, the U.S. is now the world's leader in climate denial. That's not such great news, Peter. Maybe you have some better news for us from the history vaults. Well, uh, not good news or bad news, but certainly interesting news. September 6th, 1937, two fishermen in the Mississippi River off Alton, Illinois, that's just north of St. Louis, catch a bull shark. It's okay to say bull shark on the radio, isn't it? (laughs) As long as it's that kind of bull, yeah. Well, they're saltwater creatures, but they've also been known to show up far upstream in places like uh, 2,000 miles up the Amazon River. Even farther north in the Mississippi, uh, they've been found off Davenport, Iowa. Bull sharks can live a long time in freshwater. They've even shown up in the Potomac. That's near Washington, D.C. I thought you weren't going to talk about that kind of bull. Different kind of bull shark entirely. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, a deep dive into the world beneath our feet with the new book, Underland. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Many nature writers look skyward towards majestic mountains, open valleys, and wild rivers. But there's a whole other world beneath our feet in the dark and hidden places below the Earth's surface. This is the place that British author Robert McFarlane calls the Underland. For nearly a decade, he's been venturing into ice caves, exploring underwater rivers, and crawling through catacombs to discover this hidden world that can be both beautiful and macabre. His latest book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, documents these travels and explores the human relationship with the deep time of down below. Living on Earth's Jenny Doring spoke with Robert McFarlane. So let's start off with a big question. What is the Underland? Yes, that is a very good question, and I guess there is a 500-page answer to that, but the shorter version of that would be all that lies beneath us, and particularly that which lies below the surface of the land. And it's a place that we have shunned and been frightened by, but also been drawn to for as long as we have been anatomically modern humans, and indeed longer than that. So I wrote a book about mountains a very long time ago, which tried to work out why people go high. Uh, This is an attempt to answer the question of why people go low and what they find when they do. You say that we tend to shun the underland. Why is that? 
it's dark, it's dirty, it's hard to get anywhere. It's associated with death, with mortality, with confinement, um, exploitative labor practices, <laughs> incarceration. It has a pretty bad rep, but it is also teeming with wonder and secrets. And those are its two sides. Darkness is, is an illumination down there as well. It's amazing what's just underneath the surface. Yeah, that's it. I say really early on in the book, look up and you can see literally trillions of miles on a clear night. You look down and your sight stops at the ground. And that's why we know so little, because we are so kind of optically charged in our knowledge. I mean, it seems to hold this incredible power for you as you're journeying through, as you're going through the catacombs in France and this underground river running through Italy. Yeah. Um, I mean, reading your book, it almost felt like you were traveling to Hades and back. <laughs> well, someone just introduced me to this great musical of yours, Hades Town, which just cleaned up at the Tonys. So I have some of the songs from Hades Town going through my mind. But um, I think there is a great playlist to be made from the underworld songs, the jams going underground. And anyway, <laughs> so it goes. But yeah, it's a zone of myth. Hades is one of those, um, though classical myth is filled with what they call the catabasis, the, the journey down into the underworld, often to retrieve something of value, a loved one, or to consult with somebody dead about the future. And I guess that it did come to have that pull for me, but I was always guided. The book is filled with these mycologists, um, glaciologists, and or people who have intense relationships with what lies beneath imaginative or otherwise. And they cast the light, they held the light for me. The subtitle of your book is A Deep Time Journey. Can you explain what deep time means to you? Yeah, deep time is a phrase actually that John McPhee, the great nonfiction writer, comes up with, New Yorker writer. But it's an old concept, as old as geology. But basically, it is Earth history in its full units of age and ancientness, the epoch, the eon, the era, not the minute, the second, <laughs> the week, the year. Um, deep time crushes our units to a wafer really to an irrelevance it seems but so deep time means earth historical time but I think what's striking to me about the Anthropocene arguably is that we have accelerated we have shallowed deep time or we've scrambled deep time suddenly all these things we burn carboniferous era fossil fuels to melt Pleistocene era ice to determine Anthropocene future climates and Suddenly, deep time is no longer sequential and orderly if it ever was, and it's, it's muddled, and that's an unsettlement for us. Hmm. How did you choose the places that you wanted to visit for this book? They chose themselves. I, this may be a post-hoc rationalization, but it, it did feel afterwards as though I was uncovering a kind of buried structure that already existed. Um, I knew I wanted to write about deep time. I knew I couldn't only do that in my own body and my own voice because I am a shallow time human being. <laughs> and, uh, and so there are parts of the book that are told, not by me, but just they move around within the deep time history of the underworld and around the geography of the globe as well as so in Gaza or they're in the Cretaceous or they're in America where nuclear waste storage facilities are being constructed in Yucca Mountain and so forth. But the main parts of the book occur in, in Britain, then in Central and Eastern Europe, and then in the North and the Arctic. And that's just the way it fell out. There's a lot of nature in this book, of course, but there's also man-made structures, like I'm thinking of the catacombs under Paris, France. And so you traveled down there. 
what was it like to be down there in the catacombs of Paris, France? Well, the first thing to say is that I was down there for two and a half days, which is the longest I've ever gone, which isn't very long, but is is longer, I suspect, than most people have gone without seeing the sky or the sun or the surface or anything. Um, and I went down with a, an amazing person called Lina, who was generous and bold and brave and rather different underground than she was above ground. Uh, she was gentle in both places, but she was quite um, quiet above ground, but had to be quite... Um, decisive, and she had this amazing navigational ability down there. She didn't really consult a map. She'd been down there lots and lots, and she could just map it in her brain. It was like she had GPS for the catacombs on. <laughs> so we spent time down there sleeping down in the dark, and you do lose track of time. And you also realize you're in limestone, which is a, sto a rock made of, of death, basically, of, of accumulated bodies of marine microorganisms, and, uh, and also filled with the dead of Paris. The Underland seems like such a place that evokes extremes of emotion, wonder as well as fear. How did these emotions manifest for you in your explorations of the Underland? That's a great question. And I was a, a conduit in a way. I mean, we have mined from it meaning as well as resource. Um, so I'm just one of, you know, a billion, billion meaning makers. But it, it, there was one point in Norway where I I just wept um, uh, when I when I got into this deep sea cave where cave art had been made about two and a half thousand years previously by really marginal, what we would call Bronze Age hunter-gatherers, peri-Arctic, um, peripatetic people. And then they'd painted these figures, the red dancers, out of iron oxide on the cave wall deep inside this granite mountain in a brutally wild place. So, and when I finally got there after a really hard winter journey on my own, I was overcome. You worked for nearly a decade on writing this book. How did your relationship with the Underland evolve over time? Well, the yeah, the, you're right that the idea first came in about 2010. And that was the year of the Deepwater Horizon blowout of the Icelandic volcano's eruption of the Chilean miners trapped underground. It was a real underworld year really started working in 2012. I think I a couple of things. One is I began to understand deep time as running forwards as well as backwards. Um, and the second was just the age of the time we have spent being drawn into darkness. I wrote this book about mountains and, and why we're drawn to mountaintops, but that is so young. That is just punkishly young, that cultural impulse. It's not even 300 years old. But we have been going into the darkness as a species, leaving those prints on the cave, those handprints on the cave wall that we have all seen the images of, for tens and tens and tens of thousands of years. So something is at work there, and that is inexhaustibly fascinating to me. As you've alluded to, humans have used the Underland for, I guess, as long as we've been around almost. What are the different ways that we found it useful to us? Well, I, I say early on in the book, and it took me a long time to work this out, that I, I think I call them like the three great tasks of the Underland, and they are to shelter, to yield, and to dispose. So to shelter, you know, where we put the bodies of our loved ones in a way to keep them safe so we can go back and, and meet them again. Uh, it's where the Germans are putting all of their state documents in microfiche or at the uh, Svalbard seed vault we're putting all the, the as, ma as much of seed biodiversity as we can in storage. So that's the sh sheltering. 
And then yield, obviously, we're a mining species, we're a burrowing species. We've drilled 50 million kilometers of oil borehole alone. We've mined so much wealth out of the earth. So we go to take knowledge, we go to take matter out. And then dispose is where we put the stuff we don't want our nuclear waste, our sewage. Um, the Cloaca Maxima in Rome was the, yeah, the great, basically the great sewer at the heart of Rome that, that Rome would just chuck all its stuff into. So the underworld is our sump, is our shelter, and is our treasure chest. In your book, you're thinking about the past. You're also thinking about the future. And you ask this really interesting, unique question. Are we being good ancestors? What do you think the answer is to that? No, 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 we're not. Um, and I think we're being asked to think more and harder about our ancestry now, in, but in the sense not of backwards in time, but of forwards in time. And for me, that is that is the deep time of this book, is actually not just the stuff which falls away behind us for billions of years, but what we're leaving. Do you think there's anything we can do to do a better job of leaving a good future for those who come after us? Yeah, I I do. There are countless things we can do. I mean, if we think just in terms of Anthropocene future fossils, like what, in a very literal way, what will be our future fossils? Uh, it doesn't look great. Um, we're going to leave lots of sheep, cow and pig bones behind. We're going to leave an absence of surface soil. We're going to leave an absence of biodiversity. We're going to leave a massive spike of nitrogen we're going to leave radionuclides from our testings. We're going to leave fly ash and lead. It's a pretty ugly, ugly record, particularly those extinctions and the habitat loss. That might be our script. So I would love us to exit the Anthropocene and turn up in a scene called something like the Symbiocene or the Mutualocene or the Sustainabilocene. But <laughs> it's, uh, we've got to. We've got to, actually, for so many reasons. Mm. Robert, is there a passage that you'd like to read for us from your book? Well, thinking about what we've been talking about, about the Anthropocene, about things surfacing, about time running fast as well as slow, I'll read you a bit about a section from an extraordinary event, a carving event at a glacier way up the remote east coast of, of Greenland in 2016. And I mentioned the year because that was a year of intense melt. Nuke, the capital of Greenland, was at 22 degrees C, which is not what Greenland <laughs> capital should be feeling. And the, the ice cap was melting, the glaciers were running and carving fast. And we saw this extraordinary event. There shouts Bill, but we're all already looking there where the first block fell, for it seems that a white freight train is driving fast out of the carving face of the glacier, thundering laterally through space before toppling down towards the water. And then the white train is suddenly somehow pulling white wagons behind it from within the glacier, like an impossible magician's trick. And then the white wagons are followed by a cathedral, a blue cathedral of ice, complete with towers and buttresses, all of them joined together into a single unnatural sideways collapsing edifice. And then a whole city of white and blue follows the cathedral, as we shout and step backwards involuntarily at the force of the event, even though it's occurring a mile away from us. And we call out to each other in the silence before the roar reaches us, even though we are only a few yards from each other. And then all of the hundreds of thousands of tons of that ice city collapse into the water of the fjord, creating an impact wave 40 or 50 feet high. And you go on to write about how 
you are filled with this sense of dread. Yeah, it it, it was a, a dreadful event. Um, but something else happened le- later, which is that a huge carving event happened from underneath the water. So obviously glaciers have a, a mass below the waterline. And what, what I was describing there was a huge carving event that was coming from the above water face, pulling and pulling this ice out of itself. But also what was happening under the water is a massive carving was happening under the water. And because ice is more buoyant than water, it comes up. And up came this huge, dark, blue, black pyramid of ancient ice. And for me, this was something out of a kind of early 20th century horror novella. Um, But what it was, was time itself rising up out of sequence. And of course, glaciers do this. This is what they do. They're rivers of ice. But but we are accelerating them as we are accelerating time in all sorts of ways. And and for me, that, that emblematic moment was an Anthropocene moment. Underland author Robert McFarland speaking with Living on Earth's Jenny Doring. We leave you this week with Sounds of the Earth. These are earth sounds, as you've probably never heard them, sped up 10,000 times and transposed up about 13 octaves. The sounds come from seismic recording stations in North America and Central Asia. Frog-like burps you could hear are earthquakes, large ones followed by the chirps of aftershocks. John Bullitt created this unusual soundscape of our solid, restless planet for the CD Earth Sound. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Merlin Hajiameri, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lerestein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRI Public Radio International.